Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, my name is Dr. Fiona McLean, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Dundee, where I investigate how metabolic diseases like obesity and type 2 diabetes can lead to diminished brain function. And I also have a specific focus on the blood-brain barrier. I'm really happy to be hosting this Dementia Researcher episode, where we will be exploring the Royal Society Pairing Scheme. For those of you not based in the UK, the Royal Society is the world's oldest independent scientific academy, dedicated to promoting excellence in science. Founded in 1660, its former presidents include the likes of Sir Isaac Newton, and its motto is Nullus in Verba, which translated from Latin mean take nobody's word for it. Well, that's enough of the history lesson, because today it has a thoroughly modern outlook, part of which includes supporting and encouraging diversity and early career researchers. This pairing scheme is designed to bring together research scientists and UK parliamentarians, politicians and civil servants. The scientists visit Westminster for a week, where they gain an insight into how science and research can help inform policy making. They are also paired with a parliamentarian, for example, an MP or peer from the House of Lords, or a civil servant, in order to get an understanding of what roles at the forefront of policy and decision-making are like. I was fortunate this year to secure a place on the scheme, which ran in person from the 13th to the 18th of March. And today, for this podcast, I'm joined by two other neuroscientists who were also on the scheme with me is Dr. Sarah Marzi from the Dementia Research Institute at Imperial College London and Dr. Dane Bacano-Kelly from the Dementia Research Institute at Cardiff University. Hello. Hey. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. Yeah. So before we dive into what the pairing scheme is all about, let's find out a bit more about you both. So, uh, Dean, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, my name's Dane Bacano-Kelly. I'll drop the doctor part. Um, and I'm a UKRI Future Leader Fellow, so UK uh, Research and Innovations uh, Future Leader Fellowship holder. And uh, with that, I work on Parkinson's disease, specifically the area of research that I am um, in is looking at synaptic uh, dysfunction. So I'm an electrophysiologist and uh, by trade, uh, and so I'm focusing on the early most changes that we see at the synapse, which is where I think most of the dysfunction is happening. And uh, my team and I are trying to look at multifaceted angles around that particular area. And I've just moved to Cardiff last year, actually. So the lab is just out of the teething phase and we're starting to get rolling now. So it's good. Nice. That sounds amazing. Are you enjoying Cardiff? Yeah, um, it's it's great. I, I was actually born here, so it's it's a bit of a homecoming. So it's nice to be back here. And uh, yeah, it's currently sunny, as it always is in Wales. And, um, Just and like actually, it's always yeah. sunny in Scotland, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. No, no rain clouds here. It's always sunshine at the beach. So it's good. But no, yeah, it's lovely to be back. Thanks so much, Dean. Um, Sierra, what about you? So hi, I'm Sarah Marzi and I'm based at Imperial College London, also part of the Dementia uh, Research Institute. Um, I'm an emerging leader, which is sort of a junior group leader position, um, building my own little group. And our area of research is epigenetics, which means gene regulation. So all the mechanisms in your cells that control which genes are expressed at what point in time, how much of a gene. Um, And these mechanisms are really responsive to environmental cues as well. And so what we're trying to do is understand how these epigenetic mechanisms are involved in translating genetic risk and environmental risk for common neurodegenerative diseases. And so we work specifically on Alzheimer's and on Parkinson's disease, uh, which are caused, both of them, by a combination of genetic factors and environmental factors. Amazing. Um... I think, do you know what, 
it, I know that this is obviously a podcast talking about the Royal Society Peering Scheme, but this science is so interesting. So maybe we'll maybe we'll have to revisit it. Uh, so thank you both so much for your introductions. Um, so yeah, let's dive into what the Royal Society Peering Scheme was all about um, and how it brought us together, three neuroscientists. I stumbled across the scheme uh, when I was looking for research funding opportunities um, and I ended up on the Royal Society's uh, website and uh, this opportunity caught my eye and I'm really interested in how research can shape policy and I have a personal interest in politics so the scheme really intrigued me. Um, I think also I was, um, I'm feeling quite frustrated as a dementia researcher about um, the amount of funding that's been going into dementia i.e how it's not really been enough so back in 2019 the conservatives um in their manifesto promised to double dementia research funding and that's never been fulfilled and in fact actually when you really break down the numbers we can see that there's been a decrease in funding um, so I guess I really wanted to find out about how to get my voice as a dementia researcher heard by people who can improve this um, so Sarah uh, how did you find out about the scheme and what motivated you to apply? So, yeah, I absolutely resonate with uh, what you, you've just said. So I, I came across it from uh, an email from the university. So um, I think each year when they advertise it, they send around a couple of emails and it sounded really interesting. I have to admit, I wasn't very good at politics before. I didn't really know that much about the different institutions and how government works and makes policy. But like you, um, I've been more aware of it recently that it uh, kind of affects us as dementia researchers, also um, as part of Brexit and how science funding internationally is going to continue in this country. So I think um, we have to be more aware of it these days. And so I really wanted to learn more about um, like you said, how my voice as a scientist can be heard and how we can bring in scientific uh, evidence and informed opinions as scientists into policymaking. Definitely. And what about yourself, Dean? How did you come across the peering scheme? Yeah, so uh, much the same. I wanted, like yourself, you know, I wanted to, to understand how I could influence and, and change policy. From my perspective, I've, I've been working on um, certain aspects of equality and equity, sorry, diversity and inclusiveness in STEM, uh, in science and research. And so I really wanted to know and understand more about how scientific policy is generated and how I could influence that and how I could try and, uh, and, and, and make a real change. And it just interested me. And so I was discussing that with um, uh, an old friend of mine who actually works for the Government Office of Science. And he pointed me in the direction of uh, this particular scheme for which I then applied and, and, and successfully got through. So it was, it, was, uh, it was through my previous work and the desire to do it and, and, and some connections and signposting. So it was good. Yeah, that's good. I think the one thing that all three of us sort of have in common is that we were all kind of motivated that we wanted to be able to influence, be able to find out how uh, we can help support our areas of research. And I think that's quite interesting. It's quite a good place to come from that motivation because um, it makes you want to go out and talk to people when you're on this scheme. Um, so now that we know why everyone wanted to apply, we should probably outline what we all got up to during the week. Um, so we arrived on the Sunday. Um, I think we did a competition when we were there amongst everybody of who travelled the furthest. And I thought I'd won it. <laughs> you thought you'd got it until the... So. Until yeah. somebody said they'd come from Italy that day. Yeah, and I was like, like oh yeah. no, that's definitely further. So yeah, we arrived on the Sunday uh, and we had a really nice introductory dinner when we got there and we got to meet all the other researchers that were on the scheme and the organisers as well. And that's actually how we sort of realised that there was three dementia researchers on the, the scheme, which I thought was really cool because it kind of meant that um, when we went and met the people from government uh, we could sort of have that uh, sort of voice that one voice on on what we wanted to say about supporting dementia research so there were about 30 of us in total I think would you agree about 30 um, and although we were all from neuroscience backgrounds everyone else was from really broad backgrounds um, and all from all across different UK institutes so there was engineers uh, marine biologists um, I'm trying to think who else there was, there was psychologists, loads of people. I psychologists. Think. Some, social yeah, scientists as well social sciences um, so I guess you know 
to anyone listening to the podcast if you feel that maybe you're from quite a broad discipline or whatever like you should still apply for it if you're interested in policy so that was really a wonderful experience sort of uh, be at the royal society meet um the people who run it and represent it um and then that evening we uh then went to westminster and we had a parliamentary reception uh, in the palace of westminster um, and we heard from MP Chionwara, who is the Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Innovation. Uh, we also heard from Baroness Brown of Cambridge, who chairs the Lords Science and Technology Committee. And we also heard from Dr Julie Maxton, who is the Executive Director of the Royal Society. And the reception was also attended by societies and charities, including CARA, which stands for the Council for At-Risk Academics, uh, who are an amazing, fantastic charity um, who support academics in immediate danger or in exile. And they assist them and try to continue their work in safety. Um, and they were there as well as the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Physiological Society and a few other people as well. So who did you both talk to at the reception and did you think it was a good networking opportunity? I talked to Che um, and she was absolutely fantastic orator. Um, she, she got across well. It was, it was sad to not have um, George Freeman there. Um, yeah, it would have been very good current, current um, minister minister for science, science. yeah and he, it would have been good to have him at the event based on scientists attending the royal society and integrating um his absence was obviously noted and missed but it was she she was fantastic she, and she's that uh, she's i like her she's she she's she knows what she's talking about and i think for scientists sometimes uh you get a bit worried about the representation of science in government but when you see people like um her sort of you know being the shadow um minister for science um representing and her views and the way i actually thought because i think all three of us spoke to her at sort of one point relatively sort of yeah at the same time and she she you felt like she was really listening about the sort of support that we need for dementia research and how important it is as an issue that there is this sort of lack of funding. Well, going um, back to that ECR, how much the Royal Society are pushing the ECR, it was it, uh, funding. It, it was, uh, that was what I brought up with her about how we really are one of the only, well, we're not a, we're a country that doesn't have a really a tenure track system and it doesn't have a lot of routes to success that are, firmly ingrained with the higher education institutions to allow ECRs to have that route and course upwards and that we really need more of them. I mean, as I, the UKRI FLF, the Future Leader Fellowship is one, but it's, it's only, it's like the only one and it's, it's coming to an end. And it's so, yes, exactly. And so it's, it's one of those things that there needs to be more of them and, and, and money needs to, otherwise we're going to end up with a brain drain and, uh, uh, you know, everybody moving to where places where they can get significantly, um, you know, tenured places and, and we, we need more of that so and that's been sort of made a sort of worse situation by brexit as well oh yeah um, you know you don't magnified, want isn't it so, yeah it's been magnified so yeah. i think that's a great topic to bring up she was really receptive to that and i think she was i mean she, she's she was wanting to know why that is and like what's what are the barriers and, and so it was a good a good five minute chat so it's nice yeah absolutely and i think as well well one thing to point out is if you hadn't been on this scheme you would never be able to have that level of conversation with the minister or the shadow minister for science. Um, so that's one thing that the Royal Society scheme just allows you to do that. You kind of, you know, that's the type of opportunity that's really hard to get. Um, but it's great to hear that she's receptive and listening. Um, Seda, what about you? Couldn't agree more. I think we were all fangirling a little bit over. Um, And I think for me, it's the combination. So she's an engineer by background. So she clearly has a solid understanding of science and uh, takes that really seriously. She also isn't afraid to speak opinions. Uh, She's too political in the way she expresses things, which I like and I find refreshing. Um, And like you said, she really engages with people and listens actively and reacts to what people say to her. Um, That is quite clear. And in fact, I got really lucky because um, my original pair, who was a civil servant, uh, kind of dropped me at the last minute because he was on holiday. So I just kind of snuck my way in and asked she what she was going to be doing uh, and managed to shadow her for a day on Wednesday, um, 
again, because she was so receptive about it, she said, drop me an email. And I thought, well, who knows? I, I bet she gets thousands of emails every day. But she she got back to me and she actively engaged with me, let me um, follow her around for a day. And it was the best experience ever. I think that's really great that an MP has actually engaged with a scientist that well. It was amazing. Exactly. I think that's an amazing coup. You must have, yeah. And at such last minute as well. And she's such, a, I mean, you can imagine as a shadow uh, front bench uh, minister, um, she is such a busy person and yet she still thought it was important to take the time um, to engage with scientists and to support the scheme. So um, yeah, that was really impressive. That's really good. We'll come on to the shadowing days in, in a little while. So reception, really worthwhile going to by the sounds of it and just fantastic. On day two, we started with the tour of the parliament. Um, I thought this was really cool. And maybe this is a bit, I, I mean, I'm already a bit geeky because I'm a scientist, but this is a politics geekiness coming out as well. But it going into the House of Commons, so you get to go in and see the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And it's kind of surreal because the only time I've seen that before is on the TV during, you know, the news or PMQs. And it's weird because it's like being on the TV set of a show you watch because it's so familiar, but you're there and, it's, and you've never been there before. Um, so, yeah, what, what, well, what did you first think of sort of that tour in the morning? I thought it was fantastic. It was, to be fair, it was my third time in <laughs> I, was going to say, I thought Sarah had been there before. Yeah. Um, I'm also based in London and have been for the past yeah. nine years. So, um, yeah, and I had a friend who worked in the House of Lords. So, uh, But still, it still is kind of awe-inspiring every time you are there. And because you have that association with the TV. And also, it is a really impressive palace and building like it's it's quite overwhelming right and so historical so old some parts of it um so beautiful and so much um yeah pomp almost yeah, <laughs> yeah. a lot of history a lot, yeah. a lot of history that's the bit i um, i liked i don't think we're we're, we're we're amongst friends here so we're all geeking out it was really amazing <laughs> right so it was, yeah. sorry i think um so this wasn't on the tour but chris Law, who uh, I was paired with, as I mentioned before, uh, he took me into the chapel of St Mary Undercroft. I don't know if either of you two went in. So you, I think you have to be like you have to be taken in there uh, with someone. You can't just it's not open to the public basically. Um, and the chapel is beautiful, absolutely, it's absolutely stunning. And I think it's it was built in. I've got it in my notes. It was built in 1365, so it's really old <laughs> um, but my favorite bit wasn't that chapel itself it's actually a cupboard in the chapel um, and in the this cupboard there's now a plaque um, and it's to the suffragette Emily Wilding uh, Davidson and she actually hid herself in that cupboard in the chapel on the on the evening of the 1911 census and she did that so that she would be registered as being in the Palace of Westminster on the census. And she did this because it was a big deal because women weren't allowed to vote then, let alone be members of parliament and in the Palace of Westminster. So I just, I thought it was long. I was standing in this cupboard and I was like, oh, I was just like, this is cool. It is. These little bits that are making up, you know, the history of the whole thing and it, they're all important. And it's that, that's yeah. really awesome. There was the, I just thought it was they, really cool. They chained themselves to, to the statues in that, in, in the, uh, in the old, not commons, but the old parliamentary room where where everything had been laid out like a church, effectively, and has started with all of the debates happening across across the table, across the across the walkway, was because everything had been set up like a church. But then somebody had a, a well, suffragettes movement had chained themselves up, and they'd have had to break off one of the spurs off of one of the uh, the boots of of where they changed themselves to on the. Um, on the statue and it's just remained like that because you know it's part of history and I quite like that sort of solidity of something's been physically changed and we're just going to keep it like that because we need to remember it and it was it was it was really cool it is really cool yeah I I love the history of that the rest of uh, day two and day three were when we were paired up with the people um, that we were shadowing Um, so who were you both paired up with we talked about series a little bit but we'll who were you both paired up with and what did you learn from them? 
So Dean, who were you? Who were you paired up with? So I was um, paired up with Alan Cairns, who is um, MP for the Vale of Glamorgan, so my local MP actually. Um, it was lovely to be uh, chatting with you know my both my local MP and somebody who I think is held in high regard within his party um, and so he he took me to his office and we sat down and talked about the scheme itself what I hoped to gain from it what my work was uh, and he seemed uh, genuinely interested he wanted to know and understand exactly how to link in and actually gave me large swaths of advice to, to as to how to actually um, make changes and trying to implement them here in Wales um, and it was really nice. It was it was good to to be engaged with and, and to have a, a good old chat. And I sort of met him both on the on that Tuesday and the Wednesday as well um, on two separate occasions. On the on the Tuesday we had a, a good old chat, and then and uh, actually he he made a point to point out of, out of his window we could hear music blasting, and uh, apparently uh, one of his constituents had made a point to con- continually protest um, over a series of days by playing music as loud as he possibly could on, on certain days where he knew what Alan he would protesting? be in there. Um, uh, I think in particular it was um, Brexit and uh, oh. moving, um, the move for uh, us to leave uh, Europe, um, but there may have been a, a number of uh, policies that he wasn't agreeing with. Um, uh, and, what, and, and what music was he playing? A, 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 a whole host of some of them were pretty good oh. tunes, but a host, a host of Chumba Wumba was in there at one point. But it was it was stuff that that was was aimed to to stop Alan from engaging focusing thinking which uh yeah it could uh it, it was having a success i think on one day because he was actually trying to write um 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 his speech his talk for um the general questions that were that day the general debate um of which they were talking about a general debate for the ukraine uh, and i went to witness that and it was really interesting is to see how they set themselves up for that so he had been told that he might have a certain period of time before to to give the to give his uh, address and his, to say his piece, but he didn't know how long that period of time would be until probably about thirty twenty minutes before, and so he'd written it out and then had said he was going to take out large chunks of it if it had been three minutes, which he thought it was going to be, but then it ended up being eight minutes, and so he was like, "This is an eleven minute speech, so I can just I'll take this bit out and this bit out, and then I'll go in and execute it." And it was just the uh, I don't know about you guys when I'm giving a talk. Um, I usually like to to know what I'm going to be saying, not literally two seconds before. I like to I like to know what I'm going to be doing before I go into it. So to watch him sort of be like, all right, to so, to get my main points across about how we should be supporting um, people coming uh, from the Ukraine and, and and granting them asylum and and what we can to be doing to do that. He just you know chopped and changed that on the fly, and I was and he still came across incredibly well which was really really uh good he was another significant really. orator it was rare it was it was yeah. very impressive so yeah i think that's something that we don't appreciate all the time is how fast moving politics mm-hmm. is and how adaptable the people who are whether they're mps or also their assistants the people who help them have to be yes they have to be definitely really on it yeah yeah and so wow. it was yeah really it was engaging. It was it was nice to be there, and then obviously, uh, his staff also put me in contact. Uh, put me uh, uh, the agenda for the next day, which included the uh, the select committee, which we'll talk about in a moment. I think so, um, but that was great to be part of that. And, that's that's yeah. So so it sounds like you got a lot out of that. I think so. Yeah. So I, I came away thinking, um, yeah, like I said, he gave some advice as to how to engage uh, MPs here in the Wales and how um, how best to do that. How what the right approaches would be to to really get changes going and 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 having a, a steady contact with individuals that could really make a change and i think that's that was actually you could just be like well i'll just go in and say it even if you started to understand how the politics worked which i'm with sarah i was sort of i understood but then there were sections of it that i didn't really understand select committees again as we're going to come on to in a moment was something that wasn't wholly on my radar i knew that i knew their purpose but i i I didn't realize their influence and how how that cross-party um um section of it really was quite a unique benefit to having that um but uh it was really interesting having um him tell me exactly how to execute it in in much more real terms i suppose uh, of how to make a change and engage with 
with policy and and, and that's interesting I'd, I'd quite a lot of similar conversations with um chris law um as i mentioned before he's my local mp and the one thing that he gave good advice on is if you're going to email your mp email them directly and personally like as in personally from you because i think there's quite a lot of petitions go around where it's you know um ask your mp to take part in this debate or ask your mp to sign this petition and it's an automatic um response sort of click button and it's an automatic message so they get a lot of those in so because they're all the same if you've even added anything on sort of at the end that's you know unique to what you want to say it probably will get lost um whereas if you sit down and write from your own email address um what you want to say and you know say why you're passionate about it and they're a lot more likely to engage so i think that's actually really important for a lot of uh, dementia researchers and scientists who are listening to this podcast because I think a lot of time we do get these sort of messages from uh, sometimes the charities that we work closely with to sign petitions um, or ask sorry ask our MPs to sign petitions or um, support something and actually just taking that five minutes to send the email yourself in your own words probably will have a lot more influence than just clicking the button um, and that's something that I really took away from it. It's like, right, I'm actually, if, if I'm going to take part in those things and support those things, I'll, I'll probably just write it myself. Um, and I was quite fortunate in, in some ways. So Chris was away on the first day um, doing some of the humanitarian um, work that he does uh, alongside, like sort of as part of his role as an MP. Um, and so I had the chance to speak to um, another SMP MP, uh, Carol uh, Monaghan, who she is a Glasgow MP, but she also chairs the Science and Technology uh, Committee meeting on diversity and inclusion in STEM. Um, and we had some really good conversations um, about women in STEM and the barriers that they face and about ECRs as well, early career researchers. Um, and it was really great to talk to her. And it was really nice to meet someone who'd been in science and then moved into politics. So she uh, did a physics degree and then became a physics teacher and then became an MP and I think she almost covers all the bases in a way because she's kind of done the science but she's also done the education side of science and now she's in politics um, and she was very interesting to talk to and then like I was mentioned before Chris was really um, really interesting to talk to as well and uh, it was lovely to get sort of one-on-one -on -one chats with him not only as sort of a scientist trying to learn about policy but also as his constituent um and talk about dundee and the university and and how important science is to the community that i live in um so back to sarah so you were as you mentioned before you you lost your painting yes um, <laughs> they, not they wander but uh, essentially for the days that we were in parliament i lost my pairing so um I was supposed to be working with a civil servant from the Office for Life Sciences, which is actually a really, really interesting office and a really um, interesting um, place to engage for us scientists with within the government, I think. What do they do? Just an overview. Sort um, of for, so they're, for they're responsible for um, implementing kind of life science related innovation and bringing together industry and research um, it, with a somewhat commercial outlook as well, like spin-offs, startups, uh, new things, um, but also funding new scientific initiatives and things. So, um, and they sort of hybridly fall under the um, under base, so the Department for Business, Energy, and Innovate Industrial Strategy, um, and half under um, Health and Social Care. So they really have this strong healthcare implementation focus on their life sciences as well. And I've since spoken to some people there and, and I do think they, they do really interesting work and they come up with these new initiatives and they talk to stakeholders, mainly from industry, I've, I've found. So I think this is a place where they should be talking more to us scientists and we scientists should be engaging more with them because I think we have a lot to say about um, recommendations of where this funding should go or how we can make things work better. So from the so there's a lack of academic input is what you're saying. That was yes, that was yeah. generally my impression that when politicians want to engage with 
scientific questions, they would first turn to industry and not to academia, really. I just think it's a matter of what habits and defaults, right? Because I think industry probably more proactively engages with government. And so they built up networks and contacts. And that's been the default thing for them to so something like the Royal Society pairing scheme, again, I think comes in really usefully here because it starts to build up some of those connection between academics and politicians as well. Absolutely. And um, that's such a good point. It's a two way street. So so we need to engage more with government so that they feel more comfortable or know the roots to engaging with us as academics as well in academic institutes. Um, and I think. I think that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge for us and I think it's a challenge for them. But if they, if they, as a government, think that they've already got the roots that they're happy with, I think it's down to us to show that actually, no, you're missing out. You and, are, yeah. And that there know. are alternative routes, yeah. And so we, exactly. we do need to do that. I think, you're, it's, yeah, that's entirely right. You're right. If I may, on that note, so because I talked about the Office for Life Sciences, but then actually what happened is um, I spoke to Chi Onwara, our shadow minister for science on Monday, and she had me follow her around all of Wednesday, basically. And um, I was just, I mean, my first impression is how many different topics and things can one person cover in a single day? And going kind of along the lines of what Dane was saying before, like no prep, jumping right into this, from this reception to that panel, to an ITV interview, recorded a full interview in like five to 10 minutes, sounds really eloquent and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, has good opinions on everything, but like, and there are no redos. She just does it and it's, it's right there <laughs> on it and switching between topics all the time. And because she hadn't obviously planned to have me come along because I wasn't her official pair or anything. Um, in fact, I was lucky because she, um, she's also, she's the MP for Newcastle and would have preferred, I think, someone from her own constituency. Um, I think partially made up for it by being from Imperial College, which is her own alma mater. Ah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, so basically all of our chats were sort of the five minutes walking from here to there. And we talk about some of my signs and some of her policy making. So it was, you have to be so switched on and um, yeah, really good at um, multitasking and jumping between different topics and things. So really really impressive and one of the panels that she participated in was really about um making politicians more science savvy and bringing more science knowledge into politics so that policy decisions can be made on a better informed basis um i think that's interesting i think this is something that actually has been sort of highlighted by the pandemic is how we need sort of better representation of scientists and science across a really broad range of topics in government. And I think it's interesting because we obviously at the moment are hearing this phrase uh, science superpower a lot in the media. Um, and I don't think we're really seeing how that's happening. But one of the things I did think was interesting was hearing about the number of scientists they're actually employing in the government, for example, in the um, Office for um, Science and it's doubled i think they've doubled the number yeah. of scientists that they're employing they're actively across. trying to push for it yeah so go science yeah um so now we've mentioned a few times about what select committees are um so let's actually delve into that and let everyone listening know what a select committee is because i'll be honest i kind of heard the term but i didn't really know what it was and what it was aiming to do until i went on this pairing scheme so both dana and i attended the science and technology um select committee which was meeting um to discuss diversity and inclusion in stem so first of all let's explain what a select committee is um and why they are important so dane do you want to I can uh, go for a description. Can start us like, off, and if I miss anything, you're gonna have off. to. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a first of all, it's a well, it's a selection of of MPs from all the parliamentary groups. So it's a cross, it's a cross council thing. It's cross parliamentary groups, cross party uh, um, setup, and um, that for a start, that did stun me. But but uh, I I don't know why. I I, I just. I, I knew that they existed like that, but I suppose I thought maybe there was supposed to be more political infighting when we actually saw it operating. But 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 actually, by the by, uh, um, so what we have there is a committee that is set there to investigate or look into and learn more about a specific 
point or um, area of um, uh, of society. And so the one that we were looking at and, and we were present for was equality, diversity and inclusion in, in STEM, in, in, in technology and, and research and science. And what they'll do is that they have a particular ideal and um, that they're trying to look at and investigate in more detail. And what they've done is that they'll invite witnesses, witnesses who will have been allowed to freely submit, uh, in some cases, um, testimony and information on the subject matter being, um, um, what's the word, experts in that particular area. Um, sometimes those individuals will have been summoned isn't quite the right word because it's not court but it will have been asked to attend and to to give their testimony and 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 submit the the information and so what they will do is gather this information from uh, expert witnesses expert opinions in order to um come to a conclusion of how um policy may be shifted altered changed designed in order to change what was wrong with that particular um area um <clears throat> being investigated and 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 I think ours was in particularly uh, particularly important to I think the three of us here uh, and I think to the wider scientific community at large but it was uh it was an interesting an interesting meeting I think to say the least um I don't know if I've missed something there yeah Fiona. so it was kind of split into two sessions wasn't it so the first session was two witnesses who were looking at um inclusion and diversity at uh sort of a high school level or, or even actually just a school level um so looking at what is it that makes um certain groups in society step back from doing science degrees and studying them and they were trying to find out what the reasons were and how they could actually address them or change that by um implementing policies um through government and then the second half of it was looking at, it was kind of more funding focused. Uh, so looking at um, funding and again, why certain groups are underrepresented, um, whether that be in securing funding or also sitting on the boards that make funding decisions. Um, so those were two people, they were both, I think they were both professors um, at universities. Yeah. And, and the evidence was, I mean, we were just, quite like whoa like the the it was interesting to see in a select committee in that style basically the issues from being five years old all the way up to our career stages now it's like oh my goodness like there's so many barriers to women and there's so many barriers um to ethnic minorities and disabilities and anyone who just doesn't fit that norm um that has come before effectively uh, all the underrepresented um groups that are within our stem community uh there are barriers that are preventing an increase in those particular um um uh, underrepresentation underrepresented groups so it, it was just perpetuated and it was it was really bad so we've yeah. we've kind of been talking about um sort of diversity inclusion itself um but to bring it back to select committee just to sort of um explain that so basically it's set up and witnesses come in and they give oral evidence but before that you can go online actually do you know what anyone can go online and do this and this is something that I'm going to keep an eye on now because I realize that you can actually have influence and um, on these site committees as a scientist from sitting at home so basically you can go online and you can um, look on the UK parliament website and under committees there's a section of find an inquiry and you can type in a search word and it'll bring up anything um, that has that word in it uh, that you're interested in and you can submit written evidence and they said if you do this then the best thing to do is be succinct and and um, to the point because if if it goes on and on and on they're not going to use it but about I think it said about 350 words is usually what's appropriate um, and yeah you can give your own evidence so any of us could have given evidence at the beginning of the um the inclusion and diversity inquiry um and you might be asked up to come in as a witness this was something yeah i don't know about you this was something i just didn't really know i thought that you would you would be selected and called up i thought the second half of 
what we were describing it as earlier was was a thing they would ask professors as they did to come in and that was basically about it it was ex- experts as they as they had deemed them i suppose is what I, I thought was but but it was amazing that you can you can actually influence i think this is a fantastic thing this is something one of the huge take homes that i took from this was you can influence it in this manner if you do feel strongly about them something you're right you you be succinct don't just prattle on about your own personal opinions but but base them in fact. They do want to hear that. Base them some facts. Yeah. No, I agree. But it was just. It was just. It was. I. I was awed to know that I could influence policy in that way. Is the EDI one actually closed now? Because they're going to call that one for written evidence. Is because it's moved on to. We saw move on to the. They've moved on to. The yeah, the EKRI is going to be called to give evidence now. I think they. What, what I was going to point out, if like me, upon hearing Dane and Fiona talk about this amazing uh, equality and diversity session in the select committee, which I missed, um, you would like to hear more about it. They actually record all of these things online. They you can do. literally watch the whole thing online and you can yeah. see Dane sitting behind. <laughs> yeah, we were caught on shot, Fiona. We were sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to leave totally out. Yeah. I, so I went and rewatched some of this because it sounded like a, such an amazing and so such an important session uh, for us scientists. And they, that's a really good point to me. So they, they save a lot of their, in fact, all of their official reporting goes on to Hansard. Um, and that's, like I say, the official report of all parliamentary debates and committees. Um, and you can, I think it goes back, I mean, it goes back like hundreds of years. Um, and they, they keep it up to date. So we will be able to see whatever happened today, tomorrow, it should be online. Um, and, and just one point I'd like to make on what you're saying about being involved in select committees and giving written or oral evidence if you're asked to come forward. Um, we talk about impact a lot in science. We talk about how can we make impact uh, with the work that we're doing in the lab. And we focus a lot on um, papers, obviously, so impact within our scientific communities. And I think we're getting a lot better at the impact we can make through public engagement. I think that's definitely picked up. What I don't think has been promoted or pushed much is impact through policy. Um, it kind of gets mentioned a bit, but nobody really explains how you can make that impact. And this is a really good way to do that. You can go online, you can submit your evidence um, if it's in your area of research, whether that's dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, whether that's something to do with research environments, academia, funding. You can give your opinion and influence because yeah. they, they said they will read every, they read every single bit of written evidence that gets they submitted. That, they yeah. read. Someone reads it. Yeah. And so, I thought this, yeah, it's amazing. It's fantastic to know that you can do that. Yeah, and, and absolutely. Get out there and, and so do it. Yeah, anyone listening, go online, have a look at this. Yeah. It's, it's so great that we can actually engage in this way. Um, so now we've talked about select committees. Um, and um, the other thing uh, I'd just like to mention before we move on from that is that the UK Parliament Outreach and Engagement Service, they actually uh, work in partnership with committees to identify ways which you can become more involved with select committees. So they might be a place to go to if you think, I want to do this, I'm not sure how I do this. Um, they're probably the way, the people to contact. Um, so we've talked about the shadowing, the whole experience of being there. Um, and just to wrap up now, um, Let's ask a couple of questions on what was something that you learned during the week that surprised you the most? So what was something that you sort of think, oh, I didn't expect to learn? Apart from obviously, I think the select committees for me was surprising. I was like, oh, I can actually do that. Yeah. Um, I actually, Well, I'll start then. One of the things I thought was really interesting was obviously talking to the MPs um, was really great. I really enjoyed talking to the people who assist them. So, because I feel like you find out a bit more about the reality and, and what goes on um, from those people. And um, I, Chrissy's um, employee, <laughs> Paul, who assists him in his office, was just fantastic. I spoke to him um, a lot on Wednesday um, alongside speaking to Carol. Um, and also, and I can't remember her name, but also Carol's um person who assists her as well she was lovely and fantastic and it was interesting because she wasn't actually sort of an um she didn't come through the SNP party I think it was more she was just 
um, interested in politics and found the position. Um, and I think that's interesting to know that maybe not everyone who's working within a party is actually um, sort of stuck to that party. They might have more sort of um, cross-party views. I think that's really interesting um, to learn about. Um, and also one of my favourite questions uh, to ask the MPs and the people that they worked with was who's your favourite MP that is not in the party that you are? I I loved asking that question because it made them stop and think. And they were like, well, actually, I quite like working with this person um, from the Conservatives or this person from the DUP or um, there's this Lib Dem person I like working with. It was just really interesting. And I think that's something really important to highlight is that there is a lot of cross-party um work interaction and, yeah yeah interaction that goes on yeah. um and that's a really important thing because when you have parties that are as big as um the labor party and the conservative party not everyone within that party is going to have the same view i think it's important to realize that you know these are they are people themselves um and they also are not just representing their party but they're also having to represent their constituents and they're going to have the voice in their own head that has their own opinions when they're making decisions. So it is a hard job, I think, to be an MP and to sort of decide how you're going to support something or if you're going to support it at all. Uh, Sarah, what, what did you what did you walk away from and think? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think I was really overwhelmed, impressed by the size, quality and efficiency of the civil service, public service kind of aspect of government. Um, and this includes things like select committees uh, and other mechanisms through which policy making is driven. And so when, for example, Dane says something like they read all the written evidence, that's not the MPs that read all the written evidence. There will be some public or civil servants that really go through this, that have really in-depth knowledge uh, of those things, and that then distill down and drive a lot of the writing of the outcome materials and reports of that as well. And um I, I didn't realize, yeah, how big this is, uh, how much influence this has. What we get as normal consumers of politics is, I think, a very distilled version that some cabinet minister says at the end of the day to the TV. And we were not even aware of all the process um, and input and evidence that goes into then making a final decision on, on whatever policy it is. Um, and I was, yeah, really impressed by the quality of that. On the last day, um, we learned a bit about what happens in, in crisis situations, for example, like say you have a new pandemic or say you have some problems with your vaccines that have side effects. What do you even do as a government? And there are so many um, efficient processes in place where they gather um, experts, where they evaluate what to do. Um, and yeah, I, I was utterly impressed uh, by that. I think um, just to touch that briefly as well, I think from COVID and pandemic, there's going to be a lot of select committees <laughs> and a lot of discussion around how we deal with the next huge challenge. And I think it's interesting because I think when we were there already, they were saying we need to broaden out the the places that we find our experts, their backgrounds, where they're from, geographically, um, as well as uh, their own, these individuals own backgrounds as well so you know sort of going back to that sort of diversity and inclusion that's really really important as well as within scientific topics themselves because I think they fully admit themselves that they were prepared for a flu pandemic they were not really prepared for anything else um, and I think that's been a tough lesson that they've learned um, but hopefully it is a lesson that they've learned and they're going to really broaden out where they gather their information from mm -hmm. as part of that mm -hmm. so yeah um, Dean yeah what did you serve? I think oh. we've uh, we've covered a lot of the of the main the select committee, like I said, and the influence that you can have there. Um, the, I thought it was fascinating, although I guess it makes sense. But the understanding the fact that people had to tow didn't just tow the party line; they they had to think about what they was important for their constituents, but also themselves. And I suppose it, it just came to the fore more when we were there and experiencing things like the PMQs or some of the debates or the select committees. It just made it a bit more, oh, I understand that you're having to have several hats on at any given moment. And that actually, you know, there are, there'll be some times where you're just like, well, no, I can't, I, I can't be voting on this and this policy in this way because it, it doesn't sit right with X, Y, and Z. And I just thought that was interesting. I think one of the, the, the last day, um, as, as Sarah was sort of uh, talking about, alluding to, is it was really interesting where we had a deputy director 
of Go and um, uh, influence from people on DEFRA, etc. And how we as scientists can have uh, uh, another role as, uh, in, in perhaps in addition to the ones that we have um, uh, in academia, in specifically an actual another job role where you can go and be scientific advisors, be employed as a scientific advisor, which I thought you might have to do as a sort of a full-time thing yeah. um but actually you but can they talked about secondments they lot, talked about secondments and yeah. this was something that actually caught my eye and i was i was very intrigued by this prospect um so just to wrap up then why would you both recommend the royal society pairing scheme for me it's just been a huge learning experience about all the ways um in which policy is made, in which government responds to various different scenarios, in which I as a scientist can get involved in things like select committees, providing evidence, how transparent a lot of this is. Like um, there are other instruments that the government uses, like um, all party parliamentary groups, for example, that are open to the public. And I, I yeah, I was just quite impressed by how much you can get involved in and interact with if you want to, and if you make an effort absolutely I Dean? I 100% agree I think it was the learning curve I think it was no matter how much you think you understand the politics and how we are to, ought to interact I think there was something to be learned for, by everybody I think everybody here learned something and we've all said something that we've learned today and um, I think it was just uh, I think I would recommend it because I think it's important for us to be interacting, as I mentioned just before, and I think it's an inspiring way to learn how to do that. And so, for for that for that reason, I think next year's crop will go come away with the same sets of feelings. I think that you'll come away thinking, well, how how can I do it? Or you'll go in there saying, how can I do it? And you'll come away with with actual active ways of of, of executing and influencing policy and, and and politics. So it was it was great it was nice to be able to be able to see a real route to being able to change something that affects both our local community in the science realm and and you know the world at large it was nice great absolutely i couldn't agree more um i think it was a hugely empowering experience um especially for uh people at our career stage i think it it just showed how you can yeah that route to how you can influence policy um and how to connect with policy development um and i'm gonna say i found it really fun it was fun talking to people who do something totally different um it was just really amazing to see like you know like i say what the royal society do um they were just fantastic and and just really intriguing and like i say empowering to see how um as individuals we can influence policy um in government and if anyone listening thinks that they would like to apply to the Royal Society Pairing Scheme for next year, uh, the best thing to do is to keep an eye on their website, which is royalsociety.org. Um, I think for us, the deadline was in October. Um, uh, so just keep an eye before then. Uh, so maybe August, September, keep an eye. And uh, a top tip for having a successful application is to make sure that you have a really clear lay explanation of your science. So that was uh, a really important part of the application form. Um, and this is because not everyone who reads it will be from a science background. Um, and also make sure how um, to explain how exciting your work is, because I think for them, they really want people who are excited about the research they do and who want to talk about it to them. So make sure you you hype your research up. Um, so I'm just going to end this podcast now by saying thank you so much to Sarah and Dane for joining me today. Um, we have profiles on all our guests on the website, which includes details of their Twitter accounts. So if you have any questions or just want to reach out and say hello, then drop us a line. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget, you will find lots of support for early career researchers, event listings and blogs on the same topic from uh, a regular contributor, Dr. Clarissa Glebel on the Dementia Researcher website. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.